returner listeners and our new listeners and everyone in between. We're really happy to have you back. We're happy about that. We know you're out there. We're so glad that somebody is listening. I mean, it's fun to do it just for us, but knowing you're there. It's not that fun. I mean, we need to do it. We need other people to listen. No, I mean, it's a certain amount of fun, but it's, it's what makes it really fun is if other people are listening. Even if there were no listeners, we would still meet every week and pretend to make a show. Maybe we would. We would. We'd have like a cardboard box and we just pretend <laughs> it was the computer. Okay, folks, my co-host who just came up with the idea of the cardboard box, that's Brian Barnes. I am an on-the-spot thinker, and there is Patty Payette, our planner. I am yes, I am the planner. That's what makes us such a great team. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of teams, folks, listening, we really need you to come out and audition for our virtual talent show. Yeah, no, what? you don't, you don't, I don't think you have to audition. I think you just sign up for a slot. What's this virtual talent show business? It's What's really fun? exciting. Okay, so first, everybody, save the date. Saturday, April 10th at 7 o'clock, our virtual talent show. 7 in the morning? 7 p.m. Oh, okay. Uh, right. a talent show. And we, and we want you to bring your talent, and you can be really creative in what you want to bring. Like you could do, uh, maybe you, you've got a five-minute slot. It's either four or five minutes. It's just a short window. But like Brian could do his best Nietzsche impersonation. <laughs> uh, uh, you could do yeah, a thus sp- spake Zar- Zarathustra, and I could walk around with my hood and my uh, and my lantern, looking for anyone with a good motive. Exactly, that's exactly the kind of thing. It could be a stupid pet trick. It could be a uh, musical talent. It could be a, you know, we really want to be creative and want you to be creative. So folks, here's what you do. This would really support Forward Radio because April, the first week of April is what, Brian? What's that the anniversary of? April Fool's Day, every year. <laughs> what are, what's the anniversary we're celebrating in Ooh, April? Sorry, Forward Radio. That's right. Four years yeah. on the air. Yeah. And as Brian likes to say on the show, we need your donations to help us stay alive as a radio station. We need your donations to help us stay alive as a radio station. Because are, of the technical aspect and an economic aspect. Yeah, it really is not a cardboard box. It really is <laughs> a whole system at the Hayburn building that includes a radio antenna and folks, we show up every week because we love this and we assume you love it too. And if you do, we need your donations to help us stay alive as a radio station. Please, the tickets for the talent show are going to be $10. So you could come as an audience member and bring your friends for a night of entertainment, buy some tickets, or we really want you to sign up for a slot in the talent show. How do you get get to do that and learn more? Go to forwardradio.org or find Forward Radio on our Facebook page. Yeah, it'll be super fun. Um, you could juggle. You yes. Could recite poetry. I'm doing a dramatic reading. 
Oh, you're doing a dramatic reading. That's cool. I'm not sure if I'm doing anything. I might be, I might be emceeing it, but I, if I'm not, I'm going to enter. Okay, good, good. I can't wait to see what you come up with. So yeah, I'll folks, probably, I'll probably sing. Because I have a song in my heart. It's trying to escape, much like an Edgar Allan Poe story. For more, check out The Talent Show. Um, about your dramatic interpretation. That way we can, you know. Oh, we tag team. I love it. <laughs> Oh, man. Barnes, if you do anything like that for the talent show, I'm not going. Listen, folks, um, just know that April's a special month because that's our anniversary. We also got a pledge drive coming up. More information on that. But the most important thing is to save the date for April 10th right now for the talent show and go online and sign up for your slot. We can't wait to see what you do. Forward Radio Talent Show. It's for every one of yo. I love it. You're already getting in the mode. There you go. Barnes, if you do anything like that at the talent show, I'm not going. <laughs> well, today's show is all about a certain historical figure. Forward Radio's founder, Dr. Justin Mogg. <laughs> it's not about our friend Justin, although we might want to bring him back. He hasn't been on the show in a while. Yeah, I mean, before long, all these accolades, he's going to have a Wikipedia page. And he might already, actually. Oh, that'd be neat. That'd be neat. Um, so, no, we're going to talk today about Mr. Benjamin Franklin. Oh, my goodness. You mean the very famous one? Yeah, we have never done a show about him. Well, that's fair. I'll tell you what, though. He's a big part of my life every day. Oh, come on. He God, is? God bless the bifocal. Oh, yes. Couldn't do it without him. That's right. Which, all, AKA progressive lens. That's right. Yeah, yeah slipping yeah. the bifocals over here. God bless old Ben. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what he's known for, and you give me an example of each of these things. Okay, inventor, you just gave an example. Yeah. Inventor, the bifocal. Okay, another thing he was known for, statesman or diplomat. Can you give an example? Well, he was the ambassador to London, to Great Britain, and then also to France. Yes, he was. Very good. Uh, American founding father. What is he known for as an American which okay is sexist term, but okay. So founding is a sexist term. Well, it's very, uh, it's not a very inclusive term. American. <laughs> American founding father, quote unquote. Oh, the whole term. What, Sorry. Yeah. What is he? What is he? What's he known for? Um, as a founding father, I guess he was like, um, I mean, he was, he was an ambassador and he argued for um, uh, the separation, I think, when he lived in London, he would go to Parliament and, and argue the case of the American uh, interests before Parliament. He was the representative. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also did some um, 
statecraft with France um, to get uh, alliances for the uh, independence movement, that kind of thing, and military support. Right. Yeah. yeah. So those are just some of, he was also, this today in the show, we're going to talk some about his wit. He was quite a writer and known for his wit and someone even said he was almanac is that the one that's right and some even said he was sort of the considered the first american humorist you know sort of that paved the way for people like mark twain and Mm -hmm. um so he was quite a character he was an amazing character Mm -hmm. so what i wanted to do today is i wanted to share uh since this is a show about critical thinking sort of this some of the concepts that, uh, or a central concept that um, is called the Benjamin Franklin effect. So we're going to talk about that and, and what that, the Benjamin Franklin effect. Yeah. Wait a minute, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did what? you say, did I just hear you right that you said that a central concept in critical thinking is the Benjamin Franklin effect? No. Okay, I didn't hear you right. Tell me what you said again. No, no. I probably said that and didn't mean to say that. <laughs> what in the hell is the Benjamin Franklin? Okay, so what, can you just give it to us again? I'm sorry. <laughs> I really threw you. Oh, man. At I, least I, you were listening. That's no good. One, no one has turned me on to this before. I was super, super interested. Um, I still am. Don't get me wrong, just differently. well we're going to be talking about a concept called the benjamin franklin effect and that is um helps us think about our own thinking and it's like a way in this show is all about thinking about your own thinking okay um so we're going to talk about that today also i've got a couple benjamin franklin jokes okay and you have a recent connection to benjamin franklin that's right i visited benjamin not just your glasses <laughs> yeah right say it again I, I visited benjamin franklin at his house no that's not yeah right. um i visited his former home though um when i was in london before the pandemic yeah and um really got a lot out of that trip it was actually if anyone ends up in london and you're not london kentucky by the way i don't know about the tourist opportunities down there frankly but there are tourist opportunities in London, England, and you have to be there for a while to get too many of them. I mean, it's just, it's so hard to pack things in. Um, and there's so many interesting things. If you grew up like me, uh, learning about the old country or whatever, uh, whatever, whatever we characterize that. Um, and so the best tour I took, the best guided tour that I took uh, in a week of tours was at Benjamin Franklin's house. And, oh, uh, in London. Yeah. And which, which which part of London is that? If you're looking for Benjamin Franklin's house in London, it's at 36 Craven Street, Caring Cross, and uh, that is near Trafalgar Square in central London. It's it, it's an easy walk to Parliament. Uh, it's a great place to visit if you're in the area. Okay, so tell us some tidbits about you learned on the tour. Well, it's a very interesting place. You know, different you know, window designs. Um, we don't care about this kind of stuff. These aren't the things we care about. I'll tell you two interesting things I learned on the tour. Yes. Benjamin Franklin. Yes. Um, one was that he was very into sky bathing and did it on the roof of this building for his health. And he was a progressive sort of nudist 
advocate. And so he would be on his, they showed us the porches and the uh, roof access where he would go. And he was observed on the regular sky bathing. He also knew, and he did this right because he thought that the body needed to get sun and air to all parts of it, which if you Google any of that stuff, that's a current trend right now um, in the popular culture. And he also apparently was a swimmer. And from this property, he would go down to the, uh, to the Thames and swim. And he was, very few people swam at that time. And so he was uh, sort of- like a, uh, like a novelty thing? Yeah, he was very much novelty. So, so those things. And then the other thing was he had a musical instrument um, that he created out of these glass discs that is uh, sort of like a, a sort of uh, like a xylophone and um, very interesting motorized uh, instrument. They had one there for us to play. And here is a publicly available playing of the glass harmonica, which is Benjamin Franklin's original instrument, courtesy of the Toronto Star newspaper online. Here's a cool piece from an original composition Franklin wrote for his glass harmonica, which is essentially a stem of nested wine glasses that you might play otherwise standing up separately. hearing those things because I remember when you told me you visited and I love I love to get a little some pieces I always find cultural history and historic homes really interesting a house in a historic home I visited in London myself was Charles Dickens home in London went to that one too that's a great one isn't that a good one I really enjoyed that one now when I went there they had a recording you just kind of put on the headphones and walk oh yeah no I went like 20 five years ago when before they before when people still spoke to each other that's <laughs> no. but I mean st- did someone walk you around and yeah. yeah okay yeah yeah so um uh, so anyway I love hearing that about Benjamin Franklin and by the way there's a book I want be, since we're talking about Benjamin Franklin and I and the in the this what I want to share reveals more about this crazy guy a um, really interesting, crazy guy. Um, there's a book that I would like to mention, and I'm looking it up right now because right. I read it. It's about his, uh, it's a biography about his sister. Um, okay. And I don't know if you remember, it made a big splash several years ago. Do you remember that? <laughs> I certainly do not. I don't, I don't keep up with the biography too much. Okay. Well, my book club read this. I loved it. It's called Book of Ages, The Life and Opinions of Jane Franklin. So, um, so for some context here, you know, he grew up, I think one of 17 children, like very poor. Wow. And so Jane, as women in the 18th century, no surprise, did not have a formal education, but she had what was called a book of ages, which is where 
you would put your kind of like the way the family Bible would be used sometimes uh, where people put record births and deaths and marriages and things like that. Uh-huh. And uh, so Jane Franklin, although she wasn't educated, she they were able to piece together a lot of things about her life and Benjamin Franklin's life through this book that she kept of, of materials and um, important ephemera. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so so it's all kinds of things about like her ancestors, kind of like her, her extended family and in his family, right. And it they do they kind of what they do is they show you like a lot of people know Benjamin Franklin was very successful and started started, you know, with nothing. And so it sh- sort of shows a woman at that time, a parallel track, who because she was a woman, did not have the same opportunities that her brother had. Sure. And so it, it kind of helps you understand the day-to-day life and and vis-a-vis what happened, was going on with Benjamin Franklin versus his sister. It's a really interesting book. Sounds interesting, yeah. Yeah, so I'll throw out an age of, or a book, if anyone's interested, Book Ages, Life and Opinions of Jane Franklin by Jill Lepore, who's very well known for her books about American history. Well, tell us so, something about Jane Franklin real quick. Why, I mean, why would you call her accomplished? What What should she be sort of remembered for since you, you know, read this book? Um, yeah, good question. Um, well, I think one of the things about her that's really interesting is even though she was not given opportunities, she wanted her children, and even though she didn't have a lot of money, she wanted her children to have opportunities. So how does someone who doesn't have social standing um, kind of help her own children succeed? So it was a lot about her scrappiness, her resourcefulness. Um, she had to do, of course, things like sewing and cleaning to make money. And um, she learned how to kind of the way Benjamin Franklin was very resourceful in a different way to get ahead. She had to kind of do that in a domestic sphere. And um, she was very, um, you know, great sense of humor. And I mean, again, just from what they can piece together, um, really interesting figure. I, I enjoyed the book a lot. Nice. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit. First, let me back up and say the Benjamin Franklin effect is mentioned in a book by David McRaney, a book which you gave me a couple years ago for Christmas. Yep, yep, Thank I didn't you. read it, I just gave it to you, you're welcome. Thank you, friend, it's a really great book. It's called, yeah. You Are Now Less Dumb. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. Do you remember the premise of the book? Um, oh boy, I'm just gonna guess right now, you better tell me. Okay, the book basically has these uh, short chapters and each one has a uh, a concept or an idea that helps us look at how we fool ourselves. Okay, that's what I thought it was. So I'm yeah, wondering. yeah. So he, the premise is you're less dumb because by knowing the way that you fool yourself in your own thinking, your own fallacies in your own thinking and thinking traps, then you go, ah, right? Like now I know why, for example, we should definitely do this chapter in the show sometime. <laughs> Have you noticed that your friend Patty gets up and puts on professional clothes every day and goes into an office, even though I'm coming here to sit in a chair and get on Zoom meetings and I don't have to get dressed up? 
Patty has commented on this extensively on Facebook for everyone to consider. So sure. But I haven't said why I'm getting dressed up. Well, you told me, you said yeah. um, that you, you like the ritual of going into the office and getting ready for work and it creates a different mental space for you. Is that, is that right? Yeah, so putting on clothes can actually, putting on certain types of clothes can actually put you in a mindset in different ways. And he has a chapter on that concept. Oh, wow. Of, of, yeah, so so I'd love to do a show on that. So, so that's just an example of how he uses some interesting research about how we think or how we don't think and how it influences our everyday lives. So that's really interesting because it seems to me that a lot, I've heard a lot lately about how um, putting on different outfits or putting on different um, uniforms or something can be very performative and how some people don't enjoy or kind of choose for themselves to be performative. And so since they don't have to during the COVID, because they're all working from home, a lot of people are just choosing to let that aspect go, that whatever I did before, that persona that I put out there at the office, now that I'm at home a lot, either I only partially display that or I just let it go altogether, maybe. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, but, but, so, but, but you say this is really useful for you yes. as a motivator, because what I was just expressing was a lot of people don't find it useful at all, and so they're kind of dry. Right. But, but you're saying like this, I mean, is that, but it, I mean, can I use that word for you, or is that um, trivializing, if we call it? performative is that i mean is that somehow um i don't think so and i think looking at david mcgrady's book will give us some vocabulary when we get you know we can revisit that but no i don't know if it's performative as much as it's sort of like it's like it's a ritual and it's a way of walking and presenting myself and it's almost like, yeah, it's like putting on a uniform. Then I go home and I take off my uniform and put on comfortable clothing or more comfortable clothing as a way of signaling to my brain and my body like, oh, I'm, sh I'm downshifting now. Huh. Right now I'm, I'm upshifting, putting on my work clothes. Now I'm downshifting, right? That's it's really interesting. I, I, I remember, since we're talking about this for a moment, I remember when I was in the military, I had to wear uniforms so much and I often had to work, you know, long shifts in the middle of, you know, the, of the night and stuff. I didn't really have a time when I was at work so much as whatever we're doing right now. Um, and so I never really developed that because a lot of times I would, I would come home, I'd have to go back to work in a couple hours. I'd just sit there in my uniform. Like there was no reason, there was no reason to change. They go back in just a minute. So I never really developed that habit. But what happened was when I got out of the military, I really started to chafe against all of that. Like I just, any kind, any kind of formality. I remember we, you mentioned this in a show a couple of months ago, you would show up at events and you'd just like shock everyone with your, you know, 
informal dress. Well, we don't um, want to beat, we don't want to beat that dead horse, but I will say that that is I I can see the um, attraction. Yeah. yeah. So McRaney's book, I really enjoy it, and we've we've actually talked about it on the show in the past. So we'll bring some more of it back. So this particular piece of his book is is where he talks about the Benjamin Franklin effect. And he said his book is basically about self-delusion. And it's a really fun book. It's a fun read, you know, and sort of making fun of how we think of ourselves as so evolved. And we think of ourselves as so smart and savvy. And then we get caught up with these mental fallacies and these biases and, and we're kind of brought back down to earth. Huh. So okay. sounds like people need it. Uh, maybe it helps our intellectual humility to be reminded of that stuff. Exactly. Okay. So he talks about a concept, McRaney does, called naive realism. Are you familiar with this? Naive realism. Yeah. I mean, I can figure it out, but I don't know it. <laughs> okay. This is what he says it is. I mean, maybe I can figure it out. I can, fa- I can put the words together. <laughs> so okay. let's see what he says. Okay. He says... It's the assertion that we see the world as it actually is, and our impression of it is an objective, accurate representation of reality, right? So it's, I'm going about my life day to day, and what I see is reality, as opposed to, it's my perception, it's my limited point of view, Sure. right? Yeah, of course. So, right. And so he said the last hundred years of research suggests that we all believe in a form of naive realism. Like we still believe that although our inputs may not be perfect, once you get to thinking and feeling, those thoughts and feelings are reliable and predictable. We know now that there's no way you can ever know an objective reality. And we know that you can never know how much of subjective reality is a fabrication because you never experience anything other than the output of your own mind. I mean, everything that's happened to you has happened inside your skull. Yeah, as exciting as this is, this is 500 year old news for philosophy. I mean, I, you know, this is yeah, much it, old school on this stuff. This is old news for you, but for the everyone else who hasn't been studying philosophy, who has maybe experienced that, but doesn't maybe have the language to talk about it in this way. It's a good, re- it's a good reason for everyone to study philosophy. Just want to throw that out there. Yeah. I don't know. I'll never forget when we had our friend Pete, um, why am I blanking on Pete's name? Why am I blanking on Pete's name? Why, 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 why am I blanking on Pete's name? We need your donations to help us stay alive as a radio station. Pete Walton, our wonderful friend Pete Walton. Hmm. We interviewed him a couple years ago on the show and he said his favorite quote about critical thinking. Remember from Richard Feynman's quote? Do you remember this? I remember it. He said it was from Feynman, but I don't remember what the quote was. I think what the quote was something along the lines of, uh, I need critical thinking so I don't fool myself and I'm the easiest person to fool. Oh, okay. Right, so this idea McRaney's talking about is we're always deluding ourselves. And so we're all, we need to be on the watch we need to be noting, am I, okay, this is my limited point of view. What am I missing here? This, this, is, this is only what I know, what I can see. It doesn't mean it's reality. Right. So one of the most remarkable manifestations of what he talks about is 
like recognizing the limits of our own perceptions and attitudes is called the Benjamin Franklin effect. Okay. And this is what he said it's about. The self-delusion in question is that we do nice things to people we like and bad things to people we don't like. Huh. Okay. Okay. But what the psychology behind the effect reveals is actually the opposite. A reverse engineering of attitudes that takes place as we grow to like people for whom we do nice things and dislike those to whom we are unkind. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what he's saying? No, give it to us again. Okay, so he said, we tend to think, this is what we say to ourselves, okay? I do nice things to Brian because I like him and I do bad things to my other neighbor because I don't like them. But he said, what actually happens in our minds is what's called a reverse engineering so that we grow to like people for whom we do nice things and we dislike those to whom we are unkind. Okay, so, so I definitely heard you the same way both times. So my question is, why do we do the nice things for them? Why do we do the nice things? Yeah, I mean, I mean- the, Well, there could be all kinds of reasons we do. There could I be mean, all kinds, it could be the nature of the relationship. It could be the time of day we see this person, we're in a good mood. So we do not, you know, I mean, so it's, well, let's talk more about that, but that's the central premise, okay? That we think we are driven by our own motives when in fact our motives are often driven by assumptions that we have. Okay, so I We don't... think we're in charge of our actions and our motives. Okay, we, so... we just assume that's all aligned. So I think that I do something nice for Patty because I like Patty. Right. But in fact, I like Patty. Because, because I've done nice things. Right. But then my, but this, this is the question I have. Why did I do the first nice thing for Patty? If, if it wasn't because I already liked her. Right. And I'm trying to tell you it's contextual and there's, could be a million reasons that your life is set up that way. But couldn't that be, couldn't that be the reason? It could be the reason, but it's not necessarily the only. Let, let's finish unpacking his, his. Yes, sure, it could be. But he's saying when we when we make these assumptions, actually, what we find is it's more complicated than that. Okay. Sounds like it. So, okay. So this curious effect is named after a specific incident early in Benjamin Franklin's political career. Okay. Hmm. So Franklin was one, as I mentioned, 17 children born to poor parents. And he had this very low odds that he was gonna become like a scientist, a gentleman, a scholar, entrepreneur, a man with significant political power. Like that was not in the cards for him. So mm -hmm. one of 17, it was very poor. Sure. So what he did though, what he learned, and maybe this was, hardwired in him. Maybe he just was like resourceful and looked around and, and started to notice things, but this is what he did. He's so to compensate for his lower social status, yeah. he learned amazing people skills. He was an amazing master of personal politics. This is what McGraney says. 
Like many people full of drive and intelligence born into a low station, Franklin developed strong people skills and social powers. All else denied, the analytical mind will pick apart behavior and Franklin became adroit at human relations. From an early age, he was a talker and a schemer, a man capable of guile, cunning, and persuasive charm. He stockpiled a cache of secret weapons, one of which was the Benjamin Franklin effect, a tool as useful today as it was in the 1730s. Okay, so here is what he did. Let me tell you what he did. Yeah. So, so are you getting, getting, before I tell you what he did, are you getting the picture of a young man who didn't have a lot of prospects, but was like very astute and looking around and seeing how you did get ahead, how people did, how, how the game worked. You picking that up? Sure. Okay. At the age of 21, he formed what's called a club of mutual improvement. He called the Junto. Okay. It was a grand scheme to gobble up knowledge. He invited all these working class polymaths like himself to have a chance to put together all their books and trade thoughts and knowledge of the world on a regular basis. They wrote and recited essays, held debates, devised ways to acquire currency. Franklin used the Junto as a private consulting firm, a think tank, and he bounced ideas off the other members so he could write and print better pamphlets. Pamphlets. Franklin eventually founded the first subscription library in America, writing it would make the common tradesmen and farmers as intelligent as most gentlemen from other countries. So what was his move as a thinker? What was, as a, that's a really great critical thinking move. What was his move there at 21? Well, it was to assemble other thinkers. Right, and for, do what together? Thinking, well, to create the thinking community. Right. Yeah. Pile, compile resources, trade ideas, sure. right? So right away, he's identifying who's like him in my surroundings. How do we together create an environment? I can't go to a university, or but I can create a brain trust of people, sure. right? Sure. So this is where his ep, ep, <laughs> this is where the Benjamin Franklin effect comes into play. When Franklin ran for his second term as a clerk. A peer who, whose name he never mentions in his autobiography delivered a long election speech, censoring Franklin and tarnishing his reputation. Although Franklin won, he was furious with his opponent and observing that this was a gentleman of fortune and education who might one day come to hold great power in government, rather concerned about future frictions, this is what he did. What did he do? Did he get mad? Do you think he got mad? Well, it said he was mad. <clears throat> Yeah, but I mean, what did he do with that? That that's what that what was so interesting. Uh, tell us. He set out to turn this hater into a fan. This is what he did. He wanted to do it without being servile. Like, I'm not gonna kowtow to this guy. So how do I get him to like me? How do I get him to respect me? So this is what he did. Franklin had a reputation as a book collector and a library founder. And it gave him, it gave him kind of a reputation as a, you know, discerning literary taste, right? So he had cultivated that. So he sent a letter to the hater asking if he could borrow a specific selection from this guy's library, one that was quote a very scarce and curious book. The rival was so flattered, he sent it right away. Franklin sent it back a week later with a thank you note. Mission accomplished. 
So three badge achieved. <laughs> yeah. The next time the legislature met, the man approached Franklin and spoke to him in person for the first time. Franklin said the man, even after ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions. So we became great friends and our friendship continued to his death. I mean, what do you think about that? Here's what I think about it. All right. It doesn't strike me so much as sophistry, which to me would be kind of a fake, like a fake friendship, like a frenemy. Instead, what I saw him doing was flattering the other guy, or no, uh, yes, he was flattering him by asking for a favor that would sort of put them on the same team. I love this, you love this, I would love to borrow, uh, you know, I would love to borrow that book. And maybe Franklin really did want to borrow that book. Maybe it was really helpful to him. But what he did was he made himself someone who appreciates this guy. In other words, this guy did a nice thing, which led to him liking Franklin because he didn't like Franklin. Uh -huh. So he found himself flattered into doing a nice favor for him, uh -huh. which then led them to them actually becoming friends okay i love this example and i'd love to spend the next hour talking about it so i don't know how much time you're going to allow us to do this but i do wonder wouldn't you say that this is explicitly manipulative it's manipulative for the right reasons oh wow can you elaborate on that because i think i think that I think that that's important to think about. Go ahead. What, right. Okay. So what I mean by that is his goal was, how do I forge a productive relation and connection relationship and connection with this guy? Uh -huh. Right. This guy's really important, and he yeah. kind of dissed me in public. Yeah. I want. I want to. I want. I'm trying to elevate myself. I'm trying to win over friends and influencing people. Uh -huh. So he doesn't, you know, if he had just gotten the book and sent it back and that guy talked to him and then he, they said they didn't, they said they became lifelong friends. If that hadn't happened, I thought, well, okay, well, that was kind of a move just to flatter this guy and to make him like Franklin, but Franklin really, okay, all right, now we're friends. So, yes, I mean, I, mean, I, 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 so it's a way, another way to look at it. So let's say I go to a potluck and I'm like, oh, there's so-and-so my frenemy. And I think to myself, you know, she's kind of a big deal. I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go on and on about the cake she brought to the potluck and I'm going to ask her for a recipe. Yeah. You know, I really, I don't, I don't want to have a frenemy with her. I want to. I want to try to neutralize our, our exchange. So maybe make it even positive. So I am going to ask her, cause that actually is really a good cake, you know, and I really would like the recipe. So I'm going to go up to her and I'm going to say, Hey, that was really good. Can I have the recipe? Oh yeah. And then all of a sudden we start talking and now we're on good terms. Yeah, I guess I hear you. I mean, Everything that you're describing to me, though, I mean, it just, if you didn't want, if you didn't want 
something, you wouldn't go through the trouble. I mean, it just strikes me as very, as very different from the idea that I would pursue relationships with people because of some sort of actual genuine sort of genuine you know engagement um something that that i mean just go back to the i don't want to minimize the example you just put out but just go back to the franklin example i mean you assert that maybe he wanted to read the book i mean i assert that he picked that book because he thought it would impress the person that he even and, knew about that and, and right and maybe he did maybe you're right i i'm you're right i ascribe motives that i don't know oh, i no, don't but to. i mean I, but i'm just saying that that like something like that and there are probably geez in my mind there are at least four or five spots in that story where that would matter like what that motive actually was would matter and if every one of those motives was intended to turn this political enemy into a political you know friend it would strike me that if they did in fact become lifelong friends in some classic sense of friendship that was totally coincidental <laughs> and had okay. nothing to do with the intention okay but we're missing mcraney's bigger point here what is okay that? Let me make his bigger point here. Okay. What about friendship? This whole thing has to do with the psychology of attitudes. Okay. Yeah. Those clusters of convictions about our emotional impressions of a person or a situation. Yeah. Right. Sure. So for many things, your attitudes came across, came from actions that led to observations that led to explanations that led to beliefs. Okay. <laughs> your attitude. Wait, 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 wait. You're, you're going too fast. Let you're... me say this again. Yeah, yeah. Your attitudes came from actions that led to observations, that led to explanations, that led to beliefs. In other words, our attitude about a person or a thing comes from actions that we observed and explained to ourselves, which like motives, which then leads to what we believe about that person or that thing, whether it's accurate or not. But that's classically like if you're in a intro to psychology class you just described a rationalization okay. let me let me continue okay your actions tend to chisel away at the raw material of your persona carving into being the self you experience from day to day it doesn't feel that way though to conscious experience it feels as if you're the one making holding the chisel motivated motivated by existing thoughts and beliefs it feels as though the person wearing your pants performed actions consistent with your established character, yet there's plenty of research suggesting otherwise. The things you do often create the things you believe, whereas we think our beliefs and actions are perfectly aligned and always rational. That's his larger point. So you like this book? I do like this book. I'm shocked. Well, you gave it to me. I like it. Oh, I can't believe I did. So it seems to me that what you're advocating here is that, I mean, the, I've heard this in a bunch of different places before, and it just, it gives me a little concern. It seems to me what you're advocating here is that the notion of me shaping myself moment to moment 
in free will such that I could stop at any time and drill down on this present moment, but mostly we don't. That's an illusion. No, you're overstating it. You're overstating it. That seems to be an implication of this. I mean, yeah, he doesn't mean every that would stop that from being the case. Okay, I don't think the implication is it's every thought, every belief, every action. He's saying okay. we're human beings. We operate. Yeah, absolutely. This is a this is a just like all thinking fallacies, things we can fall into. Does it mean we do it every time, every day, all the time? No. How do we know if we don't? Because it seems like what you described is an alternative to my experience. And so I, I guess I'm stuck in the idea that it's I a, don't know when I'm not doing that. The, like a lot of concepts in critical thinking, if you don't have the lens or the concept, first of all, you can never identify it. But now by having the concept in the lens, you can, be, you can begin to say, oh, What's going on here? You can ask yourself, you can begin to think about, oh, how do I feel about that person? But why do I have that attitude about that person? What's that really about? But what, what Rainey is suggesting, if I'm getting it right, is that what it's really about is that for some reason that may have been, that likely was hidden from me, I started doing things for a, a, a stranger, hypothetically. And then I ended up as a result of that yeah. mechanism, liking them. In some cases, yeah, that's his point, yes. Okay, so let me see, so let me see. Um, so, okay, okay, I've got one. Um, I go through the same intersection all the time and there's a person there, it's not always the same person say, but there's a person there who's asking for help, money, whatever. And maybe uh, I just started because of uh, social pressure from other cars or whatever was on the radio, or I just came from church or whatever such thing. I started just giving the person money or food or whatever, whoever's there. And every once in a while, over time, I would interact with that person and I would keep doing it and such that now, maybe since I've been doing it a long time and it's been mostly neutral or positive for me, maybe now I actually have a positive association, but I didn't start with that. I just have kind of built it up. Yeah, that's a would be a good example. Right. Okay. Well, it's, I mean, it's easy for a stranger, I guess, in this very, in this very limited context. I just, I, I find it a little bit difficult to put it into other contexts. Okay. Well, let me let me say this. Okay. So let me say this. This is what McRaney says. McRaney, go ahead. McRaney. McRaney. Yeah. This brings us to the chicken or the egg question of whether the ah. belief or the display came first. Okay. According to self-perception theory, we are both observers and narrators of our own experience. We see ourselves do something and unable to pin down our motive, we try to make sense of it by constructing a plausible story. We then form beliefs about ourselves based on observing our actions as narrated by that story. 
which of course is based on our existing beliefs in the first place. So it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. I'm doing this. This is why I'm doing it. So I believe in helping others. And I think I believe in helping others. So it all begins. I create a narrative that explains all of that. Yeah. This is what happened to Franklin's nemesis. He observed himself performing an act of kindness toward Franklin, which he explained to himself by constructing the most plausible story that he did so willfully because he liked Franklin after all. After all? Well, it was almost like, oh, I'm giving him this book and this guy appreciates my discerning taste. So, oh, wow, I guess really, I guess, I guess we're friends. Okay. Oh, well, it's interesting because when you say after all, it implies to me, maybe I've had too many, too many fairy tales or whatever, but it implies, to me, it implies to me something like that's, that's always what it was like. Like, oh, no, matter what no I think they just meant it. They, I think they just meant, oh, after all, like, oh, I see, like, like after, the, yeah, after all yeah, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I think it's a really, I love the idea of how Benjamin Franklin, um, was so clever. And, um, this is one of the things Franklin said in his autobiography, he that has once done you a kindness will be more ready to do you another than he whom you yourself have obliged. He who has once done you a kindness will be more ready to give do you another than he whom you yourself has obliged. So what he's trying to say is, once someone's done something nice for you, they're like, oh, I'm, they're in the groove. Like this is, this is, I'm inclined to, to be nice to Brian. So I'm, I'm just coming away from this whole thing with the picture of old Ben Franklin instead of being kind of a purveyor of nuggets of truth yeah being a really effective sophist and I suppose I hadn't thought of him like that before but all of this advice strikes me as having an air of casual manipulation to it in some cases, maybe even, let's just leave it there. Casual manipulation. Am All I, right. Am and I, I unfair? I, um, I, think, I think of it as personal politics. Like he was the master of personal politics. And, um, Aren't and manipulative by definition, though? I mean, isn't that- Personal so politics? Not necessarily. Like, for example, if I'm- if I'm a restaurant owner and I'm going table to table to ask you how your dinner was, how did it go? I'm, I'm working personal politics here as the owner of this restaurant. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to understand how your experience was. I'm trying to make a personal connection. So that's how I don't, I don't, I mean, you could read it that way. That's not how I understand it. Okay. And, um, and understanding how people think. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, he, I mean, he, it was a survival skill for him in terms of, you know, trying to get a foothold. So in his sort of social political milieu. Um, now, of course, his sister, Deborah, did not have those opportunities. She had to work her own kinds of opportunities as best she could. So he, he was quite, he was quite the thinker. He was quite the thinker. Oh, yeah, um, by all accounts. 
Yeah. Uh, I do have a couple uh, Benjamin Franklin jokes. Benjamin Franklin jokes. But before we go there, I need to tell you that there was a reason why he wasn't allowed to write the Declaration of Independence. Did you know that? Um, wait a why minute. Why did they no, have Thomas no, Jefferson? Would, oh, there was like there was like an arm wrestling thing. Well, there was a like shrewd behind closed doors, like who are we going to ask to be the main first author here? Oh. You want to know why they didn't ask Franklin? Yeah, yeah, why? Because Franklin was kind of a prankster and he was known for putting subtle jokes in many of his papers. According to Ormond Seavey, editor of Oxford's edition of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, this was the reason why Benjamin Franklin didn't write the Declaration of Independence. Because he would embed humor in, they were worried he would put a humor in satire and it would be subtle and it wouldn't be actually recognized until it was too late to change. <laughs> and knowing that the document would likely be examined closely by all the nations of the world, they chose to avoid and had Jefferson, the, the like, you know, you know, straight shooter, boring, you know, non-humorous Jefferson write it. Jefferson, the um, enslaver Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, I, as much as I think Jefferson is trash, I mean, let's not go into all that right now. I do think that um, this, this particular story about Benjamin Franklin's motives or the motives for avoiding Benjamin Franklin, I think sets him up as a premier sophist well I mean, yes but i what i love is when you look back at the things he wrote yeah. the pamphlets and poor richard's he a lot of times he's used his sophistry and yeah. his and his wit yeah. for satirizing really ridiculous sure. oh yeah there might be really good motives yeah sophistry yeah yeah sure. yeah but he was quite the trickster mm. and quite the yeah so I have something else. Contrary to popular belief, Benjamin Franklin didn't discover electricity. Did you know that? Um, no, I don't, I don't know that I know very much about that story. He was just shocked by it. Ah, it's a Franklin joke. I gotcha. Wow, totally. I mean, I thought that suddenly the fourth grade was going to be rewritten for me right here. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I was shocked. Okay, go so ahead. What denomination is Benjamin Franklin's face on? What denomination is his face on? It's on the hundred. Right. Yeah. So what do you call a circle of a hundred dollar bills? What do you call a circle of a hundred dollar bills? Picture a circle of a hundred dollar bills. Um, do you call it, um, I don't know. Do you call it a Franklin mint? Aretha Franklin's. Aretha Franklin's man, that's pretty. That's pretty nice. I gotcha. That is right in my gotcha. house. I appreciate you um, digging so low into the sewer of jokes to come up with these. These I didn't. Thing that I'm I didn't at all. No, these are these just these just flowed to the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, these yeah. are these are right what I'm looking for. Benjamin Franklin strikes me as someone who'd be really fun as like to have at the dinner table like a dinner guest yeah I, I think that's how he was often considered i think he used his charisma um to make really good relationships that's definitely the story that you get in london that you know he 
um, he had uh, relationships with people that allowed him to be effective, that it was really about those relationships and about his um, ability to negotiate and, and be flexible and stuff like that. I mean, you know, like any and, good yeah. Well, having read his sister's biography, I've sort of never read this. I'm like, oh, I'm sort of interested, in, sort of interested in reading his biography. Okay. Well, maybe other people um, are interested in Benjamin Franklin too. Well, we quoted from the Oxford, I'll tell you the book that we, not that this is, I'm saying this is the definitive one. I'm just saying it's one sure. out there, Sure. which is, um, <clears throat> what was it? The Oxford, Ormand Seavey, the editor of Oxford's edition of Benjamin Franklin's auto autobiography. All right. All right. So this man was, he was quite accomplished, quite the Renaissance man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one of the models for that. You sh we should all check out his, uh, his really cool musical instrument for that stuff. Yeah. Do you think you could find a picture and post it on Facebook? I could tell you what it is and you can. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll locate one one or the other will happen you uh, can do that while you're thinking about the benjamin franklin effect ah yes which we all want to take very seriously here and don't try to use that on me oh no we should never use sophistic techniques that are identified um to take advantage of patty no one should ever do that if that was what you were considering do not don't do that brian uh, anyone anyone at all because sometimes when you're listening to critical thinking for everyone on 106.5 fm wfmp lp louisville kentucky forward radio social justice radio you get weird ideas about what might be appropriate and we're just saying that you want to think all these things through. Don't use the sophistry to manipulate. It's for informational purposes only. It's not for everyone. That's not for everyone. But you know, the thing is that anyone could get hit with it any time. And this week's going to be tough. And the sophistry is going to be all over the place. It's going to be on you like a shirt. And you're going to be trying to fight it off. And there's only so much you can do. But the good news is that you have some critical thinking tools to help you with that sophistry shirt that you're trying so hard hard to remove so that you can get to fair-mindedness, aka truth, which might be the whole point of the entire enterprise. But of course, maybe not. And so if you're trying to get at inscrutable questions this week, just remember, there are helpful skills, micro skills, and they're for everyone. Even you. Even you, micro skiller. Thank <laughs> you.